investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, listeners, to episode 35 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Saturday, October 12th, 2019. Going to chat about a number of important market events this week. Nothing too crazy happening, but nonetheless, have a few really important events to chat about. We're going to talk about the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They dropped their bid for the London Stock Exchange. Why are we not surprised that this deal fell apart? Greece, they sold bonds at a negative yield, which is just shocking. Should investors be buying these bonds? Brookfield, the big asset management shop, they sold North American Palladium to a South African firm in a really unusual deal. We're going to talk about what makes this deal so interesting. QE4, is this the restart of quantitative easing? Well, the Fed restarted its asset repurchase program in a bid to placate money markets. And we're going to talk about why they did it. Lastly, we're going to finish off with a discussion on September factor performance. Interesting but unsurprising news in the M&A space with Hong Kong Stock Exchange ultimately dropping its bid for the London Stock Exchange. This was supposed to be a 36.4 billion dollar deal. It was unsolicited, of course. Uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the HKEX, making a hostile play for the LSE, the London Stock Exchange, but it was really dead from the start. It fit, faced big pushback from LSE shareholders, its board of directors, and regulators. Faced a lot of political pushback so it was really a tremendous mount to climb and HKEX ultimately throwing in the towel pretty quickly. It was rejected last month by uh, LSE's board of directors. They cited complications ranging from political unrest in Hong Kong. That's a huge political event globally. They also cited potential problems with uh, regulators and the London Stock Exchange certainly is not a uh, stranger to various uh, M&A deals, whether they're the target or the acquirer, and all of the regulatory hair that comes with those. HKEX released a statement saying that it's disappointed that it's been unable to engage with the management of the LSE in realizing this vision and as a consequence has decided it is not in the best interests of HKEX shareholders to pursue this proposal. Just wanted to quickly touch on the strategic rationale. What HKEX, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, was looking to do, they saw London as the center of trading between East and West, and basically they wanted to merge such that they could have live trading nearly 24 hours per day uh, between the two bourses. My take, uh, and it's important to, or for investors to really take this into account when you see an M&A proposal is to evaluate, is this really a bona fide offer? And does this have a good chance of uh, coming to fruition and actually closing? We previously discussed when this deal was first announced, so this potential deal, this unsolicited offer, that it it really was not a legitimate offer. We thought that it had a really a small chance of probability, if any, so we're not surprised to see it fall apart, which is really what we expected. Uh, and the reason it fell apart was a number of fronts. Number one, this deal was contingent on LSE dropping its friendly acquisition of Refinitiv, the financial data provider in which its shareholders really 
really liked. LSE shares rallied north of 20% off that Refinitiv deal. So ultimately the price that HKEX was offering to the LSE was really insufficient. Uh, LSE shareholders wanted at least 15% higher and Hong Kong was just unable to put up that sort of cash. Uh, effectively, LSE shareholders needed what's known as a knockout bid, which is a price so high that you really can't refuse it. The other thing is it really stood no chance of regulatory approval. LSE's attempted merger with Germany's Deutsche Börse a number of years ago, this was ultimately abandoned due to regulatory issues. Singapore Exchange's bid for ASX was rejected by Australian regulators in 2011. There's just all these national interest concerns and you see it over and over and over again, these global exchange deals continue to fail just due to national issues, regulatory issues. So that investors need to keep that in mind that these deals are incredibly, incredibly difficult to do, even if they're friendly, just from a regulatory standpoint. And then lastly, politically, this was viewed as a Chinese takeover because the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is ultimately controlled. It is publicly traded, but it is controlled uh, ultimately by Beijing. And so this deal faced a, a ton of concerns over its governance. Um, Hong Kong's government, which is controlled by, by Beijing, they actually have the ability to appoint seven of HKEX's 13 board members. So effective control of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange lies within the Chinese government. Obviously, that's a non-starter to uh, London politically and LSE shareholders um, just from a corporate governance perspective. Nonetheless, some price action here. LSE, LSE shares dropped as much as 6.5% on the news, which is surprising because I didn't really think that investors should be pricing in any chance of success. So perhaps that was an opportunity. Uh, HKEX shares rose 2.3%, uh, effectively offsetting the decline uh, that happened when this deal was announced. But nonetheless, it's important to chat about what happens when these deals fall apart. So what are your thoughts on this ultimately failed uh, unsolicited takeover? Yeah, so when we had originally discussed this uh, a number of weeks ago, we talked about how this is part of LSE's broader you know, shifting strategy, moving from being really reliant on listing fees to becoming more reliant on the data side mm -hmm. um, and get generating their fees in that sense. And so that was kind of the rationale that we talked about for the Refinitiv deal is that it really gets them some, broadens their business, their business lines and their exposures for revenue. And a deal with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange would just, for, it would be effectively doubling down on the activity-based revenue that they're traditionally seeking. So it really didn't make a lot of strategic sense outside of just the general synergies that you would have with similar business lines merging together. The other interesting thing that LSE has come out and said was that they're, they that they do want exposure to mainland China, like many businesses, mm -hmm. um, but they didn't really have a lot of interest of going through a proxy like Hong Kong. Um, so that is interesting to note, as you had mentioned, where Hong Kong has traditionally been the um, middle ground between East and West uh, economic systems. But yeah, I guess like looking at this as well, you mentioned that there is very little chance of this getting through regulators. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of a, you know, not really a great attempt to actually get a deal secured by Hong Kong. You know, this brings up a good question. Something that you mentioned is, you know, what what do you do 
when an M&A deal falls apart is this is kind of a good case study on the topic. Yeah, it's really interesting to take a look at what happens when an M&A deal falls apart and what an investor should do if you're left uh, holding the stock because typically you see significant downward pressure as event-driven investors and arbitrageurs sell the stock. Some are actually forced sellers because it's their mandate to only hold deal stock. So if the deal's dead, then they're effectively needing to exit selling at whatever price that they get. And this can actually lead to some irrational selling, uh, in my opinion. Talking from a LSE shareholder perspective, like ultimately you got to look at the business from a fundamental perspective. And uh, on that front, LSE is a tremendous deal in Refinitiv, highly accretive by over 20%. Uh, and the exchange business is a really attractive business, especially as they tack on more consistent financial data revenue. So certainly LSE shareholders are going to be fine here. The stock will continue to do well. I wanted to touch on um, some more recent deal breaks over the past number of years. We've seen quite a few, and they typically break over regulatory slash political issues. Touching on one, Acon, this was a, a Canadian construction company, engineering construction. They actually had a friendly deal to sell to a Chinese company. Unfortunately, this was blocked by the Canadian regulators uh, on national security grounds, which is odd for a construction company building roads and such. Wouldn't think that it's much uh, safety risk, but nonetheless, this was a friendly deal at $20.37 cash per share. The stock got smoked after it broke. It traded down to about 14 bucks and change. And that was really the bottom uh, of it, uh, which we see. Uh, typically, uh, after the day after the deal break, that's when there is the most selling pressure in the stock. And then uh, after a number of months, it'll ultimately trade up to fundamental value. Acon recovered quite nicely. Uh, about a year after the deal break, it actually traded briefly above its previous deal price. But nonetheless, now it trades at 17 and change. So down roughly... Uh, you know, 12% off that deal price. If we look at another interesting one, Rent-A-Center, which had a deal with a private equity firm, friendly deal to get acquired at 15 bucks per share. I believe that was to Vintage Capital, um, perhaps uh, a couple years ago. And what happened here is they had a, a friendly deal that uh, the acquirer, and it's a really unique situation because the merger agreement expired and typically they just renew the merger agreement with the goal of closing the deal. But the Retina Center board knew that business was really picking up and they were no longer impressed with that $15 price. So they're actually pretty eager to get out of the deal because they thought their price was actually, the value of their, their companies was actually worth more than the original $15 deal. And the private equity firm Vintage Capital actually for forgot to uh, you know, extend the merger agreement, which was a huge mistake uh, because now Rent-A-Center trades at 2650, uh, you know, close to 80% uh, above where the deal was. But nonetheless, on that deal, the day after, uh, ARBS really puked out of the stock and it tanked probably 8 to 10%. Been nothing but a rally since. The day afterwards, pretty much the bottom in the stock and it's rallied way, way through the deal price. Uh, and then Vintage was uh, really had egg on their face, not just that, but they're on the hook for a massive break fee of about north of. 90 million dollars very expensive mistake oh yeah so uh, i'm sure heads had to roll on that one wanted to touch on one more deal on uh, vista which was a, a utilities deal in the u.s 
which I always advise investors to stay far, far away from because they are subject to the Utilities Commission in each state in which they operate, which is a really, really, a really big nightmare for uh, companies to get the approval of the Utilities Commissions. And obviously on this one, this one broke because it got blocked from the Utilities Commission. Uh, it was a deal, a friendly deal at 53 bucks per share. It tanked upon news of deal breaking down to about 40. That's traded up since then to about 48 and change. So the main message here is more often than not, um, the worst time to sell is the day of a deal break because that is when selling pressure uh, from ARBs, event-driven traders and other investors that really don't care about fundamental value or the price they're getting, they're basically forced sellers. That is effectively the worst time to sell a deal stock and you typically, not always, but on average, you see quite the bounce back from that low point. I always joke that perhaps it'd be a good investment strategy to only uh, buy broken deal stocks uh, on the day of deal breaks. I think you'd actually have some pretty significant alpha there, but uh, to conclude on this one, it basically LSC share LSC shareholders going to be fine here. They got a great fundamental business, which is how you should uh, ultimately evaluate a deal stock after that deal falls apart. Some pretty mind-blowing news in the sovereign bond space with Greece, which is a country that actually defaulted on its debt in 2015. So four years ago, they defaulted, couldn't repay their debt. They actually sold debt at a negative yield for the first time, which is just absolutely ridiculous in my opinion, but apparently some investors are into that sort of thing. What happened here was the Greek government issued a nearly 500 million euros of three-month debt at a yield of negative 0.02%. So investors having to pay the Greek government for them to lend the money. The nation of Greece emerged from an eight-year international bailout program just last year. So their struggles have really been well documented ever since the global financial crisis. They've really had a tough go of it. Greece's economy has been growing at around 2% a year lately, but remains deeply depressed after shrinking by about one quarter during the financial crisis. So their economy has really faced a tough go of it over the past dozen years. But nonetheless, I mean, negative, negative yielding debt we've continued to talk about this. It's really proliferated throughout the Euro Eurozone with sovereign bond. You've had a big rally in sovereign bond prices, which as listeners know, the higher the price is, the lower the yield. So as these bond these bonds rally, you're seeing that yields are being pushed lower and lower. This bond rally shoved Portuguese borrowing costs down to record lows last week. The Greek government sold, is selling this negative yielding debt uh, for the first time ever, meaning more and more investors are willing to take a loss on their investment so guaranteed no return investment if held to maturity and why is this happening well it's largely just a function of QE in Europe, quantitative easing, and very low interest rates uh, from the European Central Bank. What this does, it really begets more risk, uh, risk averse behavior by investors. So to touch on like the ECB stimulus efforts and uh, which number one really have not been working. I mean, it, things just keep going from bad to worse there. There's a lot of gl gloom and doom about the prospects for the global economy. Now that has made about two thirds of the government that in the Euro area to trade at a negative yield. And just to touch on what the ECB has been up to, they took their key benchmark rate further into negative ter territory last month. They reduced it, uh, the key interest rate, by one-tenth of a percentage point to minus 0.5%. What that means is the central bank's uh, benchmark interest rate 
uh, here uh, in Europe, it's negative 0.5%. That, that key so-called risk-free rate is really the uh, gravity in which all other financial assets trade to us on a spread based off of. And so that key interest rate acts as gravity, bringing all other risk assets down. Hence, you're now seeing quite a bit of negative yielding debt throughout the Eurozone. And that's really just spreading. It's, it's starting to become imported into North America, where you're really seeing yields plummeting, not to negative territory, but what is the 10-year at, at right around now, like 1.6, 1.7%. So getting kind of dangerously close to that uh, 0% range, but nonetheless negative yielding on a uh, real basis adjusted for inflation. What are your thoughts on just this craziness in uh, green debt and would you advise investors on buying it? Yeah, so to, to add some further context, this when you're referring to the negative Greek debt, that was the three-month debt. And looking at their 10, they also, at in the same auction, they also sold 10-year bonds at a 1.5% yield on Tuesday. And so for, for context here, you know, looking back just a year ago, that same 10-year yield for Greece was 4.5% um, and was double digits as early back as uh, 2016. Right. That was, uh, I remember when they're in crisis, it was 20, 20, 30%. In, in, in the midst of the Greek cri debt crisis, so back in 2012, yeah, the, the high that it got to is 37%. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's less than 10 years ago. Um, um, where now now they're you know just barely above one percent mm. with the uh, with the ten years. So it, it like you said, it's 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 really crazy. And so the only the only way it ever would make sense for anybody to be buying these are institutions that are are you know forced to take the um, overnight rate from the from the ECB. Not just that, but speculators uh, betting on someone to pay an even higher price. The greater uh, fool theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so for, you know, for any normal investors, say North American-based investors, absolutely it doesn't make sense to be looking at Greek debt um, at this point in time. As, as you mentioned, that really just relies upon finding somebody to pay a higher price for it that really isn't backed by the fundamentals. Right. So investors, uh, this is a situation to observe, but in terms of buying, stay far, far away from Greek debt. We saw a really interesting deal announced in the M&A space this week uh, in the resource sector where uh, Brookfield Business Partners, they struck a friendly deal to sell its control controlling stake in North American Palladium, which is publicly traded. They're selling it to South Africa's Impala Platinum Holdings in a $1 billion cash transaction. Action. This deal is unique, such that North American Palladium minority investors, they are receiving $19.74 per share, while Brookfield, they have a 81% controlling stake. They're receiving only $16 per share, which is a 19% discount to what minority investors are receive, receiving. And this 1974 ultimately represented a zero pre premium takeover, basically where the stock was trading. It was trading very well. Our funds did have a position in it at the time, subsequently exited upon uh, this deal announcement. We thought it was a... Uh, a good stock to hold, but no position at this time. But nonetheless, you rarely see this happen on uh, merger deals. What I'm talking about is where a controlling shareholder uh, gets a really, really good deal for minority shareholders, which is just what happened here. So I'll hats off to Brookfield. They're really taking care of minority shareholders who are getting way more than Brookfield is taking for their stake. Minorities getting 1974 per share. 
Brookfield taking only 16 to facilitate this deal getting done. So good on them. Wanted to touch on some background on the deal. So Brookfield first got involved in North American Palladium as a debt holder in 2013. They advanced $130 million to the company at a 15% interest rate. So it was clearly highly distressed. It was a distressed debt investment. Uh, North, North American Palladium was struggling and ultimately it was a loan to own deal where you get in on the debt with the view of converting to equity in the future. The company needed these funds to expect its Lac-de-Isle Palladium mine. This is northwest of Thunder Bay in Ontario and Canada. Over the next few years, uh, North American Palladium ran into operational problems and soon was facing a big cash crunch, a liquidity crunch, and crumbling Palladium prices. So in 2015, uh, North American Palladium ultimately went through a recap that saw Brookfield convert its debt to equity in the process to become uh, the biggest shareholder with a really, really large stake in the stock. So previous shareholders really getting diluted on that one and Brookfield becoming a controlling shareholder through converting their debt into equity. But luckily in the, in the last few years after that recap was done, the company's fortunes have really turned around. They've improved significantly. The mine expansion was a huge success. You had a dramatic turnaround in the price of palladium. It's really reaching new highs. You've had a huge bull run in that and the stock has done uh, exceptionally well over the past number of years. Talking about some numbers, uh, over the past year, palladium has risen about 55%. So big, nice bull market there what's that based on is really just rising demand from the automotive industry and squeezes on the supply side but with respect to brookfield's position here clearly not a permanent older owner they they typically like to get into companies on the trough end of a cycle and clearly what they're looking to do here is exit when things are going very well multiples are high commodity prices are high and so they're trying to really top tick the cycle here Ultimately, Brookfield making three times their money uh, within six years, so uh, successful investment. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, like you had mentioned, this really wasn't a deal where Brookfield was necessarily taking a bullish or bearish view on palladium prices. Uh, it was really, like you had mentioned, a distressed debt scenario um, where they were able to take control of the asset and uh, get, generate their returns in that way. One other interesting aspect of the deal is there is a 30-day go-shop provision uh, that you know there are some potential competing bidders, but that pool of bidders really isn't that large. There's a few South African um, palladium producers, but uh, overall, unless another private equity firm became involved, which is somewhat unlikely, as you know, the mining business is a very, very capital-intensive uh, right. business. And for listeners, uh, what a go shop provision is is they effectively get to go out and shop the company, run effectively an auction process to see if there are any other buyers willing to pay a higher price, which is, uh, it's not too common. I'd say it happens in maybe uh, 10 to 15% of deals where the target company is actually allowed to go out and solicit higher offers. Typically they're, they're not allowed to do that and they're only allowed to take a look at other offers if it comes in on an unsolicited basis. Absolutely. And so you know, when, when looking at the go shop provision and the likelihood of a competing bidder to come through, I was going over some research from GMP um, where one of their analysts believes that uh, if there was a competing bid, it would likely only have upside to Brookfield shares at $16, likely not for the minority shareholders. So it'd just be an offer to sweeten the, sweeten the bid to Brookfield. 
Um, although the one interesting aspect is that if one of these strategic acquirers is making to looking to make this deal, it would likely have to be in cash as Brookfield no longer has any interest in holding shares in any um, palladium companies. And so they, they would have to increase the cash portion, which from those producers standpoint may be quite difficult for them to do. They would be more, more attuned to doing a share deal. Um, so that, that is something interesting to follow here in the next, in the next couple of weeks, um, whether a competing bid does come around, although I, I do view the likelihood as fairly small. Yeah, I also wanted to discuss why would minority shareholders get such a big premium over what Brookfield was taking. Clearly, Brookfield saw fair value at roughly $16 per share, but the big problem was the stock was trading at 19 and change, so it was a big premium to where they wanted to sell it. So it's not like a, an acquirer could come in and take out the whole company at 16 because even though Brookfield controls 81%, this deal and all of the other deals are still subject to what's known as a majority of minority vote. So within a deal like this, obviously Brookfield is gonna vote for the deal, which is 81% of the company, but you still need approval of 50% of the minority shareholders. So the 19% of shares that Brookfield doesn't own, they're ne gonna need to approve the deal by a vote of 50%. And if there is a big take under, i.e. an acquisition price lower than the market price, who's gonna vote for that, right? No one. Looks like we had the commencement of QE4, more quantitative easing, as the Fed restarted its asset purchases. What they did was uh, Federal Reserve Jay Powell, he said that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, will resume its bond buying program for reserve management purposes. Powell stressed to the market that the balance sheet expansion did not represent another quantitative easing package, but I mean, the market was skeptical, we're skeptical, previous QE was about 45 billion in bond buying, this one is 60 billion. They're saying the key differentiator and why this does not qualify as more quantitative easing is that previous QE was uh, longer term treasuries and they're doing their their previous rounds of QE was buying long term treasuries in a bid to push down long term in interest rates and getting uh, ultimately stocks to rise the so called wealth effect but here they're buying uh you know short term uh securities to try to get some more normalcy in the money markets, the repo market, which kind of lately went uh, a bit haywire with repo market yields uh, really skyrocketing. And so the Fed is looking to step in to help normalize things. Um, but what quantitative easing is, it's typically open market purchases of treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. This actually occurred first in the global financial crisis, as I stated, to get this wealth effect going. So typically it happens in periods of significant distress, huge recession, uh, economic contraction, equity bear markets. But I mean, we're saying none of that. Uh, what are your thoughts on what the Federal Reserve is doing here? It's just kind of uh, unexpected and strange. Absolutely, and viewed by as very very aggressive as I'll get to. But first, it you know what 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 was the aim of this? So the aim would like mentioned by the Fed was to restore the amount of cash reserves that banks hold that that uh, banks hold at the Fed. And so when the when the when a bank buys or when when a, when the Fed buys 
T-bills from banks. It pays for the purchase by crediting the bank's reserve accounts at the Fed. And so that's the kind of mechanism that is used here. But you know, this was seen as an aggressive move by analysts. Just to put that into perspective, uh, these planned purchases of $60 billion per month are well in excess of the growth in the money in current circulation, which is at about a $5.6 billion per, per month. So it's about 12 times larger than what the organic growth in, in currency is doing. So it's really bringing a lot more liquidity into the market, um, really bringing the world awash with capital. And as you had mentioned, Powell really wanted to stress that this wasn't quantitative easing. And that's something that we've discussed before is kind of the messaging that Powell has. And, you know, market participants have long complained about his messaging to the markets. You know, his his rationale is that since the Fed is buying shorter dated T-bills rather than long-term bonds, that it is quite different from QE. Although I, I would argue that really it is, it may be a slightly different goal, but the mechanism is still the same and it's just buying different securities. Yeah, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Clearly, this is quantitative easing despite the Fed denying it. But nonetheless, I mean, we took a look at it from a real uh, micro perspective. I wanted to touch on this from a macro perspective. Number one is it's important to note the complete 180 degree turn that Powell and the Fed have done, not just on interest rates. Last year, they're hiking rates and said they're going to steadily continue to hike. Then they stopped. Then they're now they're in a cutting cycle. But also on the balance sheet. Last year, they're keen on reducing their balance sheet from the previous effects of QE. Uh, they had a steady balance sheet runoff. And then markets got skittish in Q4, so they halted their balance sheet runoff. And now they're back to balance sheet expansion. They're out uh, more QE, QE4, expanding the balance sheet. Meanwhile, S&P 500 is, what, 2% of all-time highs. You've had the largest expansion in history, basically, in the U.S. Uh, the economy is doing great. Uh, unemployment's at an all-time low, 3.5%. But nonetheless, you got to scratch your head and think, you know, is this another negative sign for the global economy here, clearly? Clearly, the Fed is skittish. They've already cut interest rates twice this year, really trying to shelter the U.S. economy from weak global growth. And then there's all this trade policy uncertainty. Uh, the Fed, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, is uh, meeting again late October. The market's betting, betting on an additional uh, interest rate reduction uh, to 1.75% to 2%. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Got a quote here from Chairman Jay Powell. He stated, we'll act as appropriate to support continued growth, a strong job market, and inflation moving back to our symmetric 2% objective. But with this commencement of QE4, it seems like he's really, really keen on making markets happy. Investors, uh, you got to like this if you're an investor. I mean, it uh, keeps asset prices going up and uh, the Federal Reserve certainly is supportive of the S&P 500 here. That's uh, that's really I gotta, all I got to say about QE4. So we put out a blog post this week entitled September Factor Performance. What a wild month. And it certainly September was just a crazy month in terms of multi-factor performance. What we've seen really, like year to date uh, prior to September I mentioned the quote, the trend is your friend until it ends. And that really characterized things. I mean, momentum and trend were working very, very well. Value and quality were just sucking it up this year until September. 
you had a, a complete reversal. We chatted about this massive uh, short squeeze up to uh, like from the start of September to the middle of September where you had the worst performing stocks year to date stage a huge dead cat bounce. You had a massive short squeeze and the best performing stocks year to date up to some September all tanked. Remember looking at the Russell 2000, the top or the bottom six stocks year to date, the worst performers rallied uh, on average north of 10% on I believe it was September 10th. 10th and, and if, 11th. Yeah. Yeah, if, yeah, across those two days. And then you look at the best performing stocks, the six best performing stocks year to date to September 9th, and they actually tanked on average over 10%. So you had a complete reversal. In my opinion, it was a massive unwind of a long short portfolio book that uh, really, really went crazy. And that actually peaked uh, pretty much right after I put out that blog post regarding that short squeeze. So it peaked mid-September where you had uh, long short multi-factor performance doing incredibly poorly. I mean, the long book was up maybe 3% and the short book was up 16%. So long short investors were feeling a ton of pain and that completely reversed. Um, you see a massive reversal in value, which led to huge outperformance where overvalued stocks, uh, long short were up double digits, mostly due to the short portfolio just tanking. Uh, momentum into mid-month was just getting its face ripped off with a massive rally in the short portfolio, but that largely reversed. Uh, price momentum still doing poorly in the month, but it, uh, it recovered nearly half of its losses. But you had all this craziness going on in, in multi-factor performance, uh, value doing very well, but uh, momentum in one of the worst months ever and multi-factor as a model mid month, it was down double digit, just given the massive short squeeze in the short book. But ultimately it ended flat just cause that uh, short squeeze completely reversed. Clearly it was a pretty isolated event, probably one long short momentum fund, uh, getting a margin call, having to, uh, having to delever very, very quickly and leading to a lot of pain, a lot of very, very strange moves in the market. But ultimately, um, stocks always trade back down to fundamentals despite what's going on. And what happened here, uh, investors got to be aware that, uh, yeah, multi-factor did go crazy, but ultimately was a really, really good buying opportunity uh, position for funds to uh, get into uh, multi-factor investments, had a really good spread, and it ultimately snapped back pretty quickly. Absolutely. And for investors, really the takeaway here is to wherever you can try to, you know, elongate your time horizon. Um, so increasing your time horizon and how you're judging um, your investment book is really advisable. As you had mentioned, you know, there were buying opportunities, but, you know, throughout the month, really at the end of the month, nothing really happened, but there was a lot of volatility in between. Yeah, and it, a lot of time for investors to make mistakes too. I mean, uh, you had this massive volatility, and so I think that's great advice to give investors a longer-term time frame where some of these dislocations in the market are actually buying opportunities, not an opportunity to panic sell. And ultimately, uh, things tend to work out uh, for investment strategies like these. You got to take that into account is long-term performance and short-term volatility, short-term blips happen with pretty much every strategy. So that's something to really keep in mind is to have a long-term time frame of these things and just know that they do happen from time to time. And that's about it for episode 35 of the Absolute Return Podcast. As always, if you liked it, you can check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com or any of your podcast providers. Tell your friends about it. Leave us a review. Uh, check out our older episodes and be sure to check out our episode next week. Um, until then, hope you have a great week and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers.
Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.